that's the third start to the intro of this podcast, and it's because I, I, I keep wanting to explain or justify what I'm doing. This is an episode of C. McBee Reads. That's, that's all you really got to know. I did the entirety of a year. I read a free online uh, romantic sex book about some women who had taken to a prehistoric planet and dropped there, and they, they, they had to boink their way to safety. Uh, and it was good, but I actually found that reading an entire book, my commentary fell off because there was just less to say. The author had their quibbles and traits and, and odd things, and I'd made fun of them, and then it came up in another chapter. I'd just make fun of the same thing again. So I realized like the sheer length of a whole book is a problem. And it's like, well, I, I could read articles and stuff, and I've done that in the past. I just... I want to make it so that, you know, there's a variety that's interesting, stuff that's interesting to me, interesting to the audience. If you have something you would like me to read, send an email to chunkmcbeefchest at gmail.com or you can send a message, a voice message to speakpipe.com slash chunkmcbeefchest. Every social media platform I've probably tried to claim chunkmcbeefchest and they all have message systems and stuff. So if you just search for a chunkmcbeefchest, there's a good chance there's me. There is another podcast called C. McBee, and it was like the Military College of Brazil. Maybe it was Columbia Military College of Brazil, something like that. So I was going to try to start beef with them just because we got to decide who actually owns the name. But then I realized like I'm maybe starting beef with a, a literal military organization isn't my best idea I've ever had. Which brings us to fake blood, which is what we're talking about today, because I read an article about the history of fake blood, and I found it really interesting. And I thought, hey, if you listen to my stuff, I just assume the stuff that I find interesting, you would find vaguely interesting. So in 1897, there was a Parisian theater called the Grand Guignol. G-U-I-G-N-O-C. Guignol. Oh, no, Guignol. G-U-I-G-N-O-L. My writing's very poor. I made my notes very quickly. Le Grand Grignol. And it, they put on plays. They put on horror plays. I was like, I've seen horror movies. I've actually never seen a horror plays. I've seen a few plays. I wouldn't say I'm like someone who goes to plays. I'm trying to think of the plays. I've gone to a bunch of high schools, plays with my friends were in. I actually did a couple. I was really bad at it. I went to the Chinese opera which was a really interesting experience because the way they did it is they had the Chinese opera on the stage and then up they had this big monitor and it had the subtitles, but they were above, so they were like super titles. It it was mostly singing, and so this guy gave like a five-minute song and it was, you know, clearly supposed to be inspirational to his soldiers and whatnot. Uh, And then the translation was, let's go to war. I was like, "I, I think we maybe have missed a few subtle subtleties in that translation but i i enjoyed it but most plays you know they're dramas i uh, the only one i've ever cared about is waiting for godot and that's because i read it and then i saw the uh katie lang video and uh, the constant craving video and and that just reaffirmed my love for that play i think because it was only like five minutes i didn't have to actually go see it Reading it was good. I don't know if I actually want to see this stuff. So maybe I'm not like a play-oriented kind of guy, but a horror play would bring me in. I would love to go see a live performance of a horror story. They had their own secret recipe for blood. So, of course, being a horror thing, people got stabbed or there was, there was wounds and stuff. So they had their own secret recipe, and they think it was pigments, so make it red, and glycerol, which 
I assume is just like a jealous stuff. Like, anyways, they so this became like okay, we have to make blood if we're going to do horror stuff. Now, very soon they were maybe the most famous, and it seems like the first iteration of fake blood as like a thing you made for your performance was that Le Grand Rinault. Then movies came along. And movies are where, you know, uh, horror as a genre became its own thing, like a real thing. I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe live horror plays never became its own genre in a big enough way because the kind of people who go to plays maybe don't want to go see horror. I, I, do, I would really like to go see a horror play. I think that'd be really awesome. We had movies, black and white movies. And in Psycho, is one of the more famous ones because it's the shower scene where the girl gets stabbed and the, the blood trickles down and it circles the, the, the drain as the water washes the blood off the poor woman who's just been murdered. Uh, the problem is red blood actually didn't show up very well on screen. This is something I learned about that you have to do stuff to make it show up. Uh, and so it was more about consistency and darkness than it was actually about looking realistic. So at that time, they used chocolate syrup because it had the, the sort of consistency they wanted. It had sort of the, the liquidity, and it was very sort of dark and vibrant looking and very shiny, and it showed up very well on screen. There was a 1968 movie called Night of the Living Dead. If you're into zombie movies, it's essentially the first zombie movie. They used Hershey's chocolate syrup for all the blood in that movie. So when the zombies are eating a person, they're actually just pouring chocolate syrup all over their mouth and going, rah, rah, rah. so actually it would have tasted really good. So, I mean, being an extra on that movie, being one of the zombie extras on that movie, not a terrible deal because, yeah, you're maybe covered in fake blood and stuff. That actually might be chocolate syrup. Pretty easy to wash off. But then when you have to eat another person... You're just like basically licking chocolate syrup off someone, which is kind of cool. I was pretty down with that. Oh, and my thought was uh, British people are always really like Hershey's isn't real chocolate kind of stuff. So they might be really down on that. But Hershey's syrup and Hershey's chocolate bars are different, different flavors. Anyways, then we get to color. Color movies started and then you had to, you had to be able to, oh, no, wait. Something I'd learned, something else I learned about black and white movies, again, it was contrast was important. Being able to see things on the black and white film was really important. So there's the very famous end of Seven Samurai where they have a battle in the rain. And if you just have water pouring down from the sky in a black and white movie, it doesn't show up very well. The people look damp, but they don't look wet. It doesn't look like the, you can't see the rain running down their face. So what they did, if you watch that movie, it's a three-hour movie, so you might not be too into it. Um, it's a good movie, though. It, they used, essentially, ink to make it rain. So that the, the rain would show up on screen. You could see the rain, but that meant also you could see it like drip down people's faces and stuff. So you could see the rain as an effect in the movie. So black and white movies, they had a whole different set of problems they had to deal with. It wasn't about like realism. It was about visibility in the medium of black and white film. Luckily, back then, they didn't probably have like EPA or environmental controls on films or any sort of ethics. So I'm assuming that whole area was just like sodden with ink and everything in that area died. But maybe we learned a lesson since then. Uh, now, I, 
yeah, now you can actually use water and it will have the effect because you'll actually be able to see the water on the screen because our technology has come so far. But it's an interesting problem. If you are the director of the film, you're like, well, we're making it rain, but no one can see the rain. So what's the point? You might as well just do it on a sunny day. Everyone just looks kind of like moist. Then we had color film. In the 60s and 70s, what they wanted was that vibrancy to come out so that you could see the blood, so you know it was blood. So they actually made it almost cartoonishly bright. I'm sure there's a snipe, old movie you've seen where the blood looks more like like bright colored ketchup than than anything else. My coworkers and I at lunchtime have been watching uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, the samurai movies, and they do some great slashes. And there's a big spray of blood that comes out when they do a slash. If that is not the right color, you actually wouldn't be able to see it on screen. It's the same problem as the previous problem with black and white movies. It has to be able to show up. So they use really bright blood. And it looks pretty good when it sprays, but when it actually like pools, when someone gets their like throat slashed and they're lying down, there's a pool of blood. When it pools, it looks really, really bad. It looks really, really fake. But it, it did make for some excellent blood sprays. In 1963, they made a movie called Blood Feast. And not only did the blood need to be recognizable as blood, because it was blood feast, they were going to be consuming a lot of the blood. So it had to also be edible. So they used a mixture of red dye and kaopectate, which is antacid and anti-diarrhea medicine. So everyone on that set who is, uh, I assume, a cannibal of some sort, I actually haven't seen this movie. Now I'm vaguely interested in it because I know what the blood is made of. Everyone in this movie had a really settled stomach and maybe couldn't poop that day. What we want to get to is, well, was how much fake blood are they using was one of the things. Because there, 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 there was amazing amounts of blood they actually used. In The Shining, there's that famous elevator scene. Now, that blood is a little bright and liquidy, but it still worked. Uh, that was 300 gallons just for the elevator scene. That's like eight liters of blood for those of you who don't know metric. Uh, The Evil Dead in 2013, they used over 50,000 gallons, and that was just for one scene. Do you have any idea of the amount of gallons of blood you used in this thing, this thing being the movie? I know we ordered a truck the other day that was 50,000 gallons just for one scene. Is that the raining blood scene? So obviously the raining blood scene is going to use a lot. There's a couple of movies that have had rains of blood. I think the most famous one for me is in one of the Blade movies, probably the first one where he goes to the vampire dance club and they're all dancing and then the, the fire sprinklers turn on and it sprays blood over and everyone's like, wow, 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 I love my blood. I'd be interested to know what that was made of. We're going to get to the, a couple of recipes later, but I'll just finish this quote. Is that the raining blood scene? Yeah, that's a lot of blood. That's the thing where we're trying to measure because sometimes we go over the top and there's a lot of blood and we go, eh. But somebody joked because the other day I said, okay, that was too much blood. And they all said, wow, wow, that's the first time we've heard that so far. Usually I ask for more. There's always a tone that you have to hit right in horror. With the blood, you want to make sure that it makes sense all along. You choose one style, right? Like the way an arm bleeds when you cut, it could look so many different ways and not look the style and not look this in the style of the movie, right? We're kind of a little bit, sometimes we're a little bit too Japanese, I would say. It's kind of that sharp flat, and we have some of that, what? It's kind of that sharp flat, we have some of that kind of stuff. I'm sorry, Mr. Alvarez is not making sense to me right now. 
It's kind of that sharp flat where you have some of that kind of stuff. I guess he's talking about maybe the color. The color is too sharp and maybe too flat, not textured enough. I mean, that's what I like. But yeah, it's pretty over the top sometimes. So the sheer volume means that the, the different mixtures of blood, that's actually going to affect cost. And they were saying 50,000 gallons, which again, that's like 10 liters of blood for one scene. And there's multiple scenes in the movie. And there's a lot more blood in the movie. So that's interesting. I did find part of the article I was reading actually had some actual recipes. So you could actually write this down, or if you're watching the video, just, just take a screenshot or something. So if you want to make some at home, you can actually do this. So Kensington Gore was the trademarked name. So this is trademarked, so it's out there in the world. You can actually find it yourself. The trademark, the trademarked name for blood used in film and theater during the 1960s and 70s. So that's that probably really, really bright stuff I was talking about in samurai films. Today, it is often used as a generic term for stage blood. So there's the actual original trademark stuff. And then now, because it's so common, they just use it for fake blood. Kubrick specifically used Kensington Gore in The Shining. So the, the one, the, the thing that, the 300 gallons that flowed out of the elevator, that was this recipe. Golden syrup, which I assume is corn syrup. I'm actually not sure. Warm water. So again, so you can mix it. Food coloring, which is going to be the red, and cornstarch for adjusting opacity. I would have assumed cornstarch was for thickness, but they're saying, like, if it's too thin, you can see through it and it looks too wet. But if it's too thin, if you want to make it so it's harder to see, uh, thicker, it will mean it'll be less opaque, which is pretty interesting. Kensington Gore really set the standard for fake blood made with a sugary syrup base with food dye. But if we're going to talk about fake blood, we have to talk about Dick Smith because his do-it-yourself recipe, while technically poisonous, is one of the most famous. So, yeah, in what was the movie? Blood Feast, the fake blood had to be edible because the actors were going to be expected to eat it. In uh, Night of the Living Dead, they used chocolate syrup, which meant that when the zombies were eating the people, it was actually quite delicious and very safe. The one where it's the anti-diarrhea medicine maybe too much of that would have been pretty bad for you i bet it would have worked its way through eventually but you might have been pretty backed up for a while smith known as the godfather of makeup was an american special special makeup effects artist best known for his work on the famous films such as the godfather 1972 the exorcist 1973 and taxi driver 1976 he put his own twist on the syrup-based blood with the addition of methyl methylparaben a preservative he also used a photographic wetting agent that changed the viscosity of the blood and allowed it to seep into clothes as real blood would however this is what makes the recipe poisonous therefore making it unsuitable for any application where ingestion may occur so you have one the kensington gore one you can eat it probably tastes okay because it's basically golden syrup i assume is like like corn syrup which is really just a kind of sugar a water, food coloring, and cornstarch. Doesn't taste great, but edible. Whereas this one, because of the extra uh, ingredients, probably to make it, uh, he said, to make it so it bleed and in, sink into blood quickly. So probably actually making it thicker uh, without using cornstarch, which probably wouldn't absorb into clothing the same way. Like, so you get shot or stabbed or something, and that slow bleed is what they're going for. Dick Smith's blood recipe, one quart white corn syrup, so not golden syrup, one level tablespoon of methyparaben, two ounces of Eller red 
food color. To five tablespoons of Ehler yellow food color, two ounces of Kodak Photo Flow, and two ounces of water. And that's your base recipe. So you would just have to like multiply that by two, three, four, whatever to make bigger vats of it. But remember, this is poisonous. Do not drink this. Do not eat it by accident. It said, Eller red and yellow pigments are not available anymore. So some recipes will add zinc and use red and yellow food dye instead. To make this recipe less poisonous, you can use food safe emulsifier wetting agents such as liquid lichen instead of the photo flow. Another way to make it less toxic Edible blood is the go-to Sam Raimi method. So Sam Raimi, he has made a lot. He's made a lot of Spider-Man movies and stuff. For any low-budget filmmaker looking to make a horror movie, you likely need a lot of blood. And you probably need it to be very, very cheap and do it yourselfable. For the original Evil Dead 1981, they needed just that, like Dick Smith's recipe. The Evil Dead blood relies on corn syrup as the base, but to make affordable blood that still looked good on camera, Raimi and makeup and effects artist Tom Sullivan used a non-dairy coffee creamer in their recipe. You can also find the recipe in Bruce Campbell's autobiography, If Chins Could Kill, Confessions of a B-Movie Actor. It's a pretty good title for a book. So the Evil Dead Blood recipe is six pints of clear cotto syrup. So uh, you have to get a British man to go out for the evening and drink six pints and then take those glasses and then you can make this blood. Three pints, oh, you need a British man and his girlfriend. Three pints of red food coloring, one pint, and their kid has to come with them too, one pint of non-dairy creamer and one drop of blue food coloring. Is that one drop of blue food coloring in, in six, seven, eight, nine, ten pints of liquid? Is going to change the color enough? Because if it's three pints of red food coloring, one drop blue, I wonder how much of a difference that makes. Many movies and television series still rely on these recipes or some derivative for their bloody visual effects. However, others are turning to a cleaner method of gore, pixels, uh, CGI blood. Less interesting, though. We we do want... Uh, we What I want is for you to be able to make it at home. That was, to me, the more interesting part. So, if you deign to attempt one of these make it uh, at home do-it-yourself blood recipes from movies and cover yourself all in blood and fake a murder scene i would like a picture so you can send a picture to chungvhs at gmail.com and uh, i would really actually really enjoy to see what people do i i'm kind of thinking the next break i might make some fake blood with my kids and see see what we can make happen because I would love to fake a murder scene and then send a picture to my wife, which I bet she doesn't find funny. Okay, so the other thing, let me get that up on the screen now, yeah, for me. To continue see McBee Reads, it's 25 minutes, but I think I messed around the first like five, 10 minutes. This might only be a 15 minute podcast. The other thing I read about, so there was your transition, is octopi. Now, the first thing I'm going to have to address is the usage of the term, the plural, octopuses versus octopi. Now, very technically, grammatically, octopuses is correct. But if you use octopuses and correct people on their usage of octopi, you need to realize that you're not fun and no one really enjoys being around you. And you might argue, yes, people do enjoy being around me. You're incorrect. People tolerate you. Uh, They exist in your vicinity but they are not enjoying that experience. So that's just something to be aware of. If you naturally 
feel the instinct to correct someone who says octopi and go, actually, the correct grammar is octopuses. You should go home and sort of just rethink the entirety of your existence. You could do better in life by just using the plural I, which is just way more fun in every capacity. Um, and sometimes language is about pleasure. It's about enjoying existence. It's about communicating with people and creating sounds that are pleasurable for them as, as much as yourself. You probably are the kind of person who really enjoys hearing their own voice, whereas everyone else, what they hear is the annoying grating of someone who thinks pulling words out of a dictionary is a good idea when it inhibits having a good time. Kind of lost it at the end there, if I'm being honest. But I think my point is uh, pretty solid in that if you correct anyone who says octopi, uh, you should go away. So I did read an article about octopuses, octopi. Uh, octopi are just amazing animals. They, they, they're, is it cephalopods? I actually have to check. I don't want to get that one wrong. Octopi versus octopuses, I'm pretty confident about. Cephalopods, Pretty sure that might be an alien thing. I think here's the problem with read like watching a lot of fiction and stuff. Sometimes you get your technical language mixed up with real stuff and fake stuff. So sometimes I'll like actually say something that sounds scientific, but it's like from Star Trek, so it's not real. That's problematic. Uh, there's a reason I have an English major and not a science major. Let's put it that way. Research published in 2021, Octopi. I am correcting the article I'm reading from. Octopi were observed punching fish during collaborative feeding sessions. In some cases, the punches were to prevent exploitation, ensure collaboration. So in other words, keeping the peace. So basically, one fish was eating too much food. All the fish needed to get food, so the octopi took it upon themselves to just like a little deck here and there to just nail one in the face and be like, you've had enough. Uh, you need to let uh, this other fish over here have a little bit of food. But in other situations, it seemed that the octopi punched the fish for no other reason than to punch them. But that actually, something we do know is that octopi have memories. So really what's, see, they're making an assumption that they're just hitting them for no reason. I bet they remember some crap that that fish pulled before and they're like, I'm still angry at you. I'm still decking you. How do you like that? Don't come around here no more. Octopi are famously antisocial animals and are solitary even when it comes to their own species. Maybe this is one of the reasons I like octopi so much is uh, I am similar. Now, it seems like I'm very social. I make podcasts. I stream to the internet. I do a lot of stuff that's out there in the world. But I, you'll notice I primarily do it by myself. I'm in my room. My friend group is primarily online. I would say I would enjoy spending time with them. But I actually probably be like, but it'd be more fun if we both went home to our computers and played a game together or something. So I don't know if that's antisocial so much as just I have a very, very specific set of lifestyle choices and needs and wants. A group of researchers gave octopi MDMA, popularly, popularly known as Molly or Ecstasy. Now, uh, one thing I always enjoy about science is when they're like, well, what was the premise of giving an octopus ecstasy. Now, you could say there's a scientific degree we're trying to research something, try to work, figure out how the brain works, what, what, what effect does it have on the animal, but really, you know these scientists had done Molly in the past, and we're like, you know, we've been working with this, I don't know the, the octopi specific name, which is too bad, because I'd like to start referring to them by name, Kevin. We 
know Kevin's been working hard. He's done like a whole bunch of experiments. He's taught us a lot. And we want him to have a good time. Let's pop, let's call it research. Let's pop him a little molly ourselves and uh, see what happens. Make sure that uh, Kevin parties tonight. Octopi are typically asocial creatures. So the scientists wanted to see how the drug that affects serotonin levels and induces extroversion in people would impact the octopi. So essentially, this is the same experiment as if you gave me molly. Would I then want to go out and spend time with other people? Would I, what would happen to my serotonin levels, which uh, flatline constantly? As it turned out, the normally solitary octopi spent time with one another after sitting in an MDMA bath which sounds like a really relaxing bath at first. I guess not. I've never done it. I've never done ecstasy, so I don't actually know. Like, I know it makes you more social and you like you want to touch each other and stuff, which is pretty gross. Um, but does it relax you? Does it, does it amp you up? Because I know, like, you know, cocaine is famously amps you up and you want to clean your house, and then, like, weed kind of, like, lowers you down and you kind of kind of get sort of more sedate. I actually don't know where MDMA falls in that. Uh, the normally normally solitary octopi spent time with one another after sitting in a bath, even going so far as to touching each other with their arms in an exploratory way. Whether this says more about octopi or the power of MDMA is perhaps for you to decide, but still, it's cool that octopi can play nice sometimes. Um, I do have friends who've done ecstasy when they used to go to raves, and they did talk about like just like touching each other a lot which, again, sounds awful to me. I don't know if I enjoy anything about that. Octopi are smart and cranky, which sounds like every old man I know. So I think maybe, again, this might be why I start to relate to them. Last year, scientists described seeing octopi gathering silt and shells off the seafloor in Jervis Bay, Australia, and flinging them at their peers. (laughs) Ah, Which I find funny, which, you know, makes me think that the octopi find funny as well. Uh, the researcher believed that throws must serve a social purpose, but to my untrained eye, this looks pretty antisocial. I mean, maybe they're just having a good time. This is how they entertain themselves. I go to judo, which is me grabbing onto, honestly, friends and sometimes strangers and trying to hook them as hard as I can into the ground. And it sounds like the octopus and I share certain traits. This is, again, why I probably was so immediately connected to this article. Uh, research published in 2021 tracked octopi's sleep schedule. I suppose if I say octopi, I can't say octopies, but it is uh, possessive. I don't know, because if it's plural possessive, octopies, octopies, octopi, I put, added more eyes, octopi sleep schedules. The scientists found the animals had sleep states similar to REM. States in humans when we dream. If the animals are dreaming, though, the researchers don't think they have dreams as complex or lengthy as their own. They have no fucking idea if that's true or not. That is a massive assumption on their part. They might just have a broader view of the universe, so what they consider a simple dream, you would consider mind-blowing. So I think scientists... The problem is scientists, as much as they might talk about science, make so many assumptions, which is completely unreasonable. It should be more like a small video clips or even GIFs, which is how most people spend their waking days. I'm sure there's about 12 jokes in there. If you actually want to put the effort in, I don't. As new approaches to studying octopi mind come to bear, we may get a better understanding of how they think. Uh, I think that is, you might, but again, you're not going to if you start making assumptions that there are more simple thought processes. Like Dave the dog, my dog, he sleeps. 
Uh, he sleeps quite regularly and quite generously. He's sleeping right now in the corner. He dreams. Now, he does little twitchy things like dogs do, and everyone's, oh, he thinks he's dreaming he's chasing a rabbit. No one knows that. He might be dreaming that he's just exploded the core of the universe and has reformed everything into a more perfect utopian balanced system where everything is egalitarian and there is no unhappiness. And that's that little twitchy motion. Then he goes... <laughs> the assumption on our part is speciest, if I'm being honest. Uh, it's the, the assumption on our part is that we're some sort of superior intellect and that other animals can't have that. Because they don't communicate with us in the same way, we make assumptions that they are a lower species. And I think that's unfair. And it's especially unfair for the octopi because the octopi, as we all know, is basically an alien. Like, it is the most alien-looking thing on the planet Earth. You know, why would you assume that its dreams are more simplistic than ours? In February 2023, researchers announced that they had managed to record brain activity in freely moving octopi for the first time. The scientists implanted electrodes into the data logger into day octopuses. Octopus cyanera or cyania or cyaneria. I think I would say cyan because it has the C-Y-A-N in it. Cyania. Brain activity patterns recorded in the research have not yet been tied to specific behaviors. And again, maybe we don't understand the relationship because they're so alien to us. But if the practice sticks, it may provide more information about the inner workings of the octopus and specifically how their brain actively corresponds to their movements. They're very complex, flexible legs that Japanese anime really enjoys. There are ethical questions here, as in the case whenever devices are inserted into animals that cannot express consent but inserting devices in animals for science is arguably better than frying and eating them and persuade. That's a non-equivalency, if I'm being honest. Yeah, that actually just threw me. The writer just started to throw in their opinion. I was thinking about, they used to think that babies don't feel pain. So they used to do like surgery on babies and stuff without any anesthetic, which is terrifying if you think about it. So what can we actually take away from the octopi study. And really what I take away from it is that scientists make too many assumptions. And those assumptions are bad science. And what the octopi have taught us more than anything else is that if you want to do science, you have to do science properly, which means don't assume that because a species is different, that that species is a lower capability intellectually that their dreams are... I'm really stuck on the dreams thing, you can tell. I, I actually want to just conclude by saying, like, scientists made the wrong assumption because they made an assumption where, realistically speaking, there's no way to know one way or the other. And anytime you see scientists assume or someone assumes, you can just immediately should be thinking, that's bad science. 